Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a British-born Nigerian psychiatrist, illustrator, artist and science fiction writer. He's won many awards, including the Arthur C. Clarke Prize for the first book in the horror fantasy trilogy, The Murders of Molly Southbourne, which was described by one reviewer as as unsettling as one of Francis Bacon's screaming popes. Well, his dark and comic novel Jack Daw, published earlier this month, narrates a psychiatrist's quest to write a short piece on this contemporary figurative painter, Bacon, and considers the obsession that comes with the creation of art and the innate hunger to destroy it. Hey, Thompson, welcome to Monocle Reads. Thank you for having me. This is a mad book. Yes, it is. It is. (laughs) And I think that it's the only kind of thing that would have been worthy of Bacon himself. I don't think anything chased or controlled or sedate would have been good enough for Bacon himself. Well, I want to see where this comes from in terms of who you are. So give us a bit of background. I'm just a guy from South London, you know, I was born in Lambeth. I had friends like everybody else, you know, parents were from Nigeria. We went to Nigeria, lived there, came back, did the thing that everybody wants for their children, which is, you know, go to university, get a job, you know, live a nice non-criminal life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's me. I, you know, I've always liked art and writing and telling stories, that sort of thing. But I've said before in many other places, you don't tell your your Nigerian parents that you want to be a writer. It's just not something you do. They, they'll just look at you like, what are you talking about? Writing is a good hobby, but, you know, get a real job. You know, be an accountant, a lawyer, a doctor, something like that. So I would write on the side and study and write on the side. And luckily I was good, you know, I was good with standardized tests and I was good with whatever academic intelligence is supposed to be. So... As soon as that became more stable, in other words, when I finished all the exams that the Royal College required of me, then I started to take writing a lot more seriously. Why study psychiatry? When I came out of medical school, I thought I was going to be a paediatrician or an ENT surgeon because those were the things that I really enjoyed and I got prizes in them in school. So I thought, okay, that's what I was going to do. I started with paediatrics and I realised that I love the children, but I really hate the parents. (laughs) You know, (laughs) honestly. The complaints, everything, it was just too much. I said, okay, I'm not doing this. So I tried to be an ENT surgeon. And one of, in the surgery, I think one of the first surgeries that I attended, we're doing surgery on someone's maxillary sinus, the sinus that is, you know, the, like your upper cheekbone sinus, the gap in your, in your skull bone there. And there was just so much slime that I was like, uh, it's, it's disgusting. No, I don't want to do this. How on earth did you ever get through medical school if that kind of stuff puts you off? Well, it doesn't put me off. I can, you know, I can do minor surgeries. I've taken out tumours, like minor superficial tumours. I've done stuff. That it doesn't, I don't get disgusted. It's just that it, I looked at it and said, I don't want to do this every day of my life, like several times a day for the rest of my life. I just realised that that was just not it at all. So after that, I bummed around a bit. I did pathology. I did clinical chemistry. I did all kinds of things. And all of it would somehow become routine and boring after a while. So I left medicine for a while because I'm like, okay, maybe this just is not the thing for me. It's just not stimulating me enough. So my friend, a friend of mine called Thomas said that, why don't I try psychiatry? And I hated psychiatry in school. I absolutely detested it. I was like, ugh. I think part of the reason I detested it was because the very first, uh, the first day of my psychiatry posting, it was an ECT posting, like um, 
you know, like five minutes after I came into the posting, they were giving someone shock treatment. And it was very, you know, I wasn't prepared for it. I, it was very unsettling. And I was like, nope, not doing this. <laughs> so I told my friend, like, look, I, I don't like it. He said, well, try it and see. And I did. I went, I spent a month in a hospital, I think, in Bedford or Luton, one of those places. And I loved it. I never got bored because each case was an individual with a life story and uniqueness to the person. So I could not really get bored at all. Mm. And that plays into your love of story, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it does. So your new book is called, your new novella actually, Jackdaw. It's described as a metafictional dive into the life of Francis Bacon. Because the name of your protagonist is in fact Tate Thompson. Yes, that is true. <laughs> and you know, the reason for that, obviously apart from the fact that I really want to screw with people's heads, <laughs> you know, because people are like, well, how much of this is true and how much is it not? And how could you possibly do these things to yourself in fiction and all of that. But the reason I did it was because, of course, to prepare for this, I had to read pretty much everything in the public domain that Francis Bacon ever said, as much about Francis Bacon as as I could find. And one of the things he used to say, and he was a very complex character, often he would say things because of an impression he wanted to create, but his reality could be quite different from what he said his reality was. So it's very difficult to find the actual real Francis Bacon in the midst of all of that. However, um, he did say that he felt like art should really be where people's lives intersect together and mash together. And it should be the slime that forms in between those intersections. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but his idea is that art should come from life, from the transformation of life and from the bits and pieces that are not necessarily the most pleasant, but that those tend to be the most interesting. Mm. Mm. You know, um, and he didn't shy away from it himself. You know, his life was very, shall we say, colorful. And so I wanted to create something like that. I wanted to create something like that seemed like a life that had been squashed together and that that's, this is the slime that came out of it. And of course, sometimes it's actually in the book. There's literal slime, you know, in many places. It was me transforming everything that I read about his life and his work into this. But why use your own name? To show that... You have to take a risk to make good art. You have to use your own life. You have to not be ashamed or afraid of anything. It's artistic risk-taking. In the book, the Tade in the book suffers appalling abuse. Yes. How autobiographical is that? Not very. (laughs) Not very at all. I just thought that it would be interesting because Francis Bacon himself was abused was seriously abused by his father, Um, used to whip him a lot, used to get stable boys to whip him. He suffered horrific abuse. And again, it's really bad form to psychoanalyze someone you've never met, obviously, but it might have been part of what led him to masochism because he knew he was homosexual from a very young age and the stable boys who were hired to beat him by his father actually turned out to have sexual relationships with him. So his concept of what might have led him to pain as a kind of pleasurable thing might have had to do with that. But I don't know. I'm just I'm just reading between the lines here. But I figured, OK, child abuse had to be part of that. Someone who had suffered child abuse had to be a big part of the story. Mm. Because obviously sex is kind of central in, in this. And the fictional Tade tries all, all manner of things and, and kind of is slightly disappointed in himself, I think, because he feels that actually he is quite kind of heteronormative. Yes. And that is... Again, that's that's a metacriticism on the character as well, or on myself writing the book, because what I realise is that I can't, no matter what I try to do, I cannot embody the mind of a person who was so different from me. 
different from my life, from my really nice, comfortable middle-class life. I can't embody the things that he went through. And so part of that was was part of my frustration in like, okay, well, I can never actually become this person enough to write convincingly about this person. So I have to put that in there because that's part of the honesty. The honesty is, yeah, you're just a tourist. You are a tourist. You're reading the books about this person and you're visiting the places that he visited, trying to feel something, but you can't actually feel it. You're just trying. And mm. that's really all you can do. I mean, it's about the writer, I suppose, feeling so desperate not to shortchange his subject that he himself descends to this degradation, yes. but eventually to, to utter madness. Yes. And part of that part of that is a commentary on art and writing itself. The idea that you can create something that is apart from yourself is a myth. Everything that you create, every character you create has something to do with you, even when you think, OK, I'm dealing with a character who existed historically. Therefore, I should be able to create that character in some way, but you can't. And even you yourself as a writer, you are often myth-making. Like even, okay, so I'm here, I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm doing an interview. I am creating an impression of myself. Now, it is an impression. It is a glancing blow at who I might be. But it's myth-making. I'm just talking about the writer as I see the writer. And so there are several layers of commentary on it. Like most of the interviews that Francis Bacon did was him making myths about himself. Likewise, the myth, me, the author of the book, and the character of the book, who is supposed to be the author of the book, is also myth-making. You know, so it, these are the layers that I was trying to explore in kind of a mind-blowing way. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> it does feel like a confluence between your writing, your psychiatry, and your yes. artistic practice. How do the life experiences inform each other and continue to inform your work? Well, the problem is you can't actually separate. You know, we, we are not separate people well at least those of us who are who who lay claim to psychological health we really can't claim to be separate people we have separate roles i try to see it as a kind of gemstone with separate facets and people face different facets and when you want to explain a particular facet you turn that facet and then a person understands that facet but you can't understand the whole from a facet so i can't separate one side of myself from the other so the writer informs the psychiatrist who informs the artist who informs the father, you know, the partner, whatever. All of them inform each other. And part of the trick is you mustn't let the poison from one row contaminate another row. Mm. Any writer will tell you, if you look at their search history, you're going to find very disturbing things. <laughs> if you look at my search history just from this morning, you're going to find how to dispose of a body. But this is what every writer does. We look at the darkest parts of humanity because drama lies there and interest lies there. And you talk about keeping those things separate and not allowing them to kind of bleed into each other, but what about them bleeding into your own private life? Does that horror exist within your own psyche? No, it doesn't at all, because I think what happens is a lot of people, the reason people find certain things horrific, I believe, is that they look away from them too long, and then when they see them, everything looks horrific. Take something like Halloween. We're coming up to Halloween, and everybody puts on comical mass of monsters. Basically, to me, what I feel like we're doing then is reassuring ourselves that these monsters are so silly that they don't exist and therefore we can be calm about them. So everybody dresses up as ghouls and as skeletons and as Frankenstein's monster and we feel calm about that. And that's a good way of doing it. You know, so our children dress around and do trick-or-treat and they dress as these things and it makes them think these things are fantasies, therefore they don't have to worry about them. And it's reassuring. And that's why people watch horror films, because you can watch horror films and then 
you know, the lights come on and you're like, okay, it was just a dream. It was just a film. It was just imagination. The things that horrify me are stories, for example, about prisons. You know, these um, reality shows about prisons in America, those things scare the hell out of me because, you know, as a black man myself, I feel like I could be arrested. I could find myself in prison for something I haven't done. And I could be there for many years before I'm exonerated, Mm -hmm. despite living what one would call a virtuous life. You know, anything could happen to you at any time. And then I could find myself stuck in prison. And then what would I have to do to survive? That frightens me more than anything else. So any monsters, anything on the screen, anything that comes from the imagination does not frighten me at all. You, like your fictional character, have a a Nigerian background. Yes. Tell me about the West African Yoruba people, because this comes up, you talk about the sort of Yoruba cosmology. Yes. uh, And there's order and chaos, there's heaven and earth, but there's no hell. And I wonder how it connects to, I guess, the Freudian element of the book about how the protagonist makes sense of the discomfort that he is experiencing. Yeah. Well, Yoruba people are main, you know, most of us are in Nigeria, but some of us spread along the West African coast, as you can imagine. I have relatives in Niger Republic. I have relatives in Ghana because that's kind of how everything spread. And because of the transatlantic slave trade, they're in Brazil, South America, and all of that. I do like the religion because there is no hell. It's like you atone for everything you do while you're on earth, and then you're worthy, and then you go to heaven. A lot of that has become contaminated over time with Christianity and colonialism and all of that. But generally speaking, it's a religion where there are two essential forces that guide the lives of humans. One of them is order, which is Orumila, who is the son of God, who determines what your destiny will be on earth. And as long as you follow that destiny, you will be fine. You're not going to commit crimes. You're not going to be poor. You will just be able to survive and you will have health and so on. But if you contravene that destiny, there is the punisher who has often been conflicted with Satan, but isn't. He's more, he's more like Loki, um, more like a trickster, you know, like a person who, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, he is then entitled to punish you. And if you appease him, he will then leave you alone, that sort of thing. So the idea of a person descending into a form of madness would be that the person is sent into the realms of the punisher because Really, the person is not following their own destiny. And one of the things you'll find about the book is that when the character finally decides, I am no longer writing this book, that's when the character knows peace. And that's when he's left alone by the Punisher, you know, and life kind of returns to a degree of normalcy. Now, one of the things that is that I think, because I've, I've, I've heard commentary on the book, I found that commenters don't understand the ending because they feel like everything just resets itself. Yeah. That's a lack of understanding of West African storytelling. In West African storytelling, actually the status quo is returned. It is almost always returned. The idea of a hero's journey is more like a Western concept. And I I can speak for hours on that, which, you know, I'm not going to, but I, I could. The idea that a person has an arc is not necessarily what happens. Even the idea of an individual, of a person being their own self with boundaries is not the same thing in African conception of, you know, cosmology, individuality, or, any, or, or even storytelling or anything like that. The idea is that you are a person, you're an agent that doesn't exist on their own, but exists within a community, within a group of people, and you have a role within a group of people. In fact, you don't even become a person at birth. You become a person usually around 10, 11, 12. If you're passive within the community, you're not actually a person just yet. 
And so most of the stories are meant to say, if you go out of your destiny, you will get punished, then you get punished, then you return to your destiny, and then you're fine. And without the context of the West African storytelling, which I had actually foreshadowed in the beginning, Mm -hmm. um, but without that context, many Western writers won't understand why it returns to that point at the end. But it's deliberate. All of it is specifically crafted. Mm. One commentator, uh, Paul Tremblay, described your book as a literary equivalent of a Francis Bacon painting. And, And of course... It's kind of true because early on in the book, this pervasive feeling of shame hits you, which isn't dissimilar to the the discomfort one feels when standing in front of a a Bacon painting. Would you accept that as an accurate comparison? I would accept that as the highest possible praise. And that's what you're aiming for, That's what I was aiming for, yes. I wanted a book that would make you feel that way. And everything in there is part of that. The mentioning of the other Francis Bacon, you know, the Lord Bacon, for example, all of that was deliberate. The mentioning of scientific method at that time, part of that was foreshadowing something else that's coming later, you know, that this whole thing seemed like a mystical happening, but also a scientific happening that may have led to all of the mystical happenings. And that's the reason why I had the scientific Francis Bacon and the artistic Francis Bacon together in the beginning. Mm -hmm. All of it is meant to evoke the paintings of Francis Bacon, all of it. Even parts of it, you know, because again, people, people focus a lot on the period parts of it, all right? Even that is deliberate. And anybody, if you, if you look at all of Francis Bacon's paintings, I looked at all of them in a very short time. There is something I saw in his paintings that led to pretty much everything that ended up in the book. And yes, it's uncomfortable because the paintings are uncomfortable mm. and you can't, you cannot write about Francis Bacon and write something that is comforting. It can't be a comfort read. It must make you uncomfortable, you know, so that's what I did. Why write about him at all? Why not? Approached by the Bacon estate? So, by the way, the, um, my agent in the book is not my real agent. I just, <laughs> you know, and I kind of continue the metafictional part by adding the fictional agent in my, my acknowledgements. I, that's not a real person or anything like that. There was an approach, you know, is this something that would interest you at all? I had already been interested in Francis Bacon's work. It was because, okay, the origin of my interest had to do with the film Alien. The design of the alien creature in this, the first alien film, you know, the Ridley Scott one. The design of the creature was by an artist called H. Geiger. H. Geiger's designs were actually based on studies for three figures at the base of a crucifixion. They were, so they were based on Francis Bacon's work. So that decades ago, you know, in the 80s, basically had led me to Francis Bacon's work from the start. And yes, they were uncomfortable for me as a child. And I had another bout of looking at them again when, in the 90s, you know, and then in the early 2000s and everything. So all of that was kind of already there. So this was actually stewing for a long time in my subconscious. So, you know, when my agent said, there's a new company starting up and they want to do artwork, film, books and everything based on the works of Francis Bacon. I said yes before I even knew what the conditions were or anything like that. I said, yes, can I just write what I like? And they said, well, you know, they want something that about his life, about his work. I said, yes, can I write what I like? <laughs> you know, because I, I kept saying, like, look, I don't want any fetters. I want to just do whatever it is I like because it was already, you know, as soon as I, as soon as you mentioned it, 
it was already forming, mm. you know. In my and of head. course, you're published by Cheerio, which is the yes. fantastic Claire Conville, yes. um, who really does just give that freedom to her writers. Yes. Always with a slight. There's always a quirk, though, isn't there? Yes. <laughs> and if there's no quirk, I mean, what's the point? I mean, you look. I know there are the people who like to write the same comforting read all the time, and then, you know, they have their fans who want exactly the same thing every book with slight alterations. I can't do that. All my books are different. I would get bored. It's the same thing that I mentioned earlier about my medical career where I got bored of things. I would get bored if I had to write the same thing every single book. You will never hear of like, I don't know, a 14 book series from me. No, that's not going to happen. Everything will be different. What I'm writing after this is completely different from this as well. So yeah, that's that's the way I see it. Claire is fantastic. They, you know, like Claire, Harriet, they, nobody, like I said, my agent was like, he read it, you know, because he was the first person to read the first draft. And he's like, are you sure? <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, this is what I want to do. I said, do you not like it? So I said, he said, no, it's fantastic. I love it. But I'm sure you want to name this guy after yourself. I said, yes, I do. Because that's that's the job. And it would not, if I shy away from that, I would not be doing Francis Bacon proud. I don't want anybody to ever be doing any studies of everything related to Francis Bacon. And then to pick this book up and think that, ah, this is, you know, it's a bit weak sauce. I don't want that. I want it to be something that can be included in, you know, in Francis Bacon studies. Yeah, absolutely. And it you feels know. kind of visceral. You can see the gleaming yes. guts of him. Yes. You know, that is the purpose. That's yeah, absolutely. what I want. Are you still a practising psychiatrist? Yes. That's good, because this book is so insane. If you weren't, I would suggest that you saw one, because it just, it's mad. Would you say it's yeah, mad? I agree. Yes, it is. But look, we're talking about a person who'd wake up in the morning, paint diligently, go to the pub, and drink till he's shattered, go to the West End, gamble, pick up a rent boy, go home, and get flogged seriously by the rent boy. Like, this is this person's life. And he would, in a very disciplined way, wake up early the next morning and kind of do the same thing. And so he was prolific. He was doing the work. He was disciplined in his indiscipline. It's kind of hard to see. But I read a lot about the lives of artists and, and writers and creative people. And even though they give themselves to dissipation, they make the work 100% their focus. So they do the work and then they do whatever else they're doing that makes them call for characters and then they go back and do the work. And I, I believe that. I believe in the work of the artist. I believe that you have to show up every day and do it. People ask questions about inspiration. I don't particularly believe in inspiration. I just believe in waking up early, sitting down and doing my pages. And most times it's dross. Sometimes it's good. Well, this you is know? very good indeed. Tay Thompson, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Jack Daw is published by Cheerio. You've been listening to Monocle Reads. Thanks to our producer, Nora Hull, our researcher, Tamsin Howard. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from SoundCloud, Mixcloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>